Michael. Hi, Allison. And welcome everyone to Dean's Discuss COVID-19. It's great to be back talking with you about research done by our faculty and our staff and our students. And we're very excited today to continue this discussion. I'm excited, Michael. We're going to dive into a really important topic. It's a big one and it's uh, lots of interest. Let's talk about vaccines. Yeah, of interest to a lot of people for, for very good reasons, because obviously without a vaccine against COVID, you know, we face a daunting challenge of natural immunity among everybody that's been infected. Allison, did you know where the word vaccine came from? No, but I bet you do. <laughs> it is a interesting, a little known fact. Uh, Edward Jenner, uh, who actually was observing milkmaids uh, this was in the late, uh, you know, 1800s or so. And, and as he was observing them, he noticed that they did not uh, get smallpox. So he started to observe them and he noticed that they did get a disease. It was called cowpox. And uh, cows, uh, the word for cow is vaca. And uh, so that's where vaccine came from. It was a natural observation of really what they were doing was self-immunizing with a, a different kind of virus, uh, cowpox, but they were immunizing themselves against smallpox. And he developed some of the first vaccines against smallpox, which of course is a scourge back then, but now we have a vaccine. In fact, if you wanna see it, I have a scar from my first <laughs> vaccine that I had as a kid. I'm old enough, you're not, but I'm old enough that I got actually a scarified vaccine from that. So great topic today. Yes. So, you know, that's the, this is the one thing I get asked a lot is when are we going to get a vaccine? And, you know, I'm always cautious to tell the people that some of the antibody testing that we talked about the last time is really the foundation for the vaccine. Uh, but, you know, the NIH is really um, putting lots of interest in vaccine and doing some rapid cycle uh, delivery. So, um, maybe you can help, uh, you know, you have a, a deep virology background. Maybe you can help our listeners understand kind of how vaccines are made. Yeah, and I think it's important that vaccines come in a lot of different forms. Um, and the, the way that uh, technology has improved over the, the many years is that we have a lot of what they're called platforms or different ways that we can vaccinate uh, individuals, people and animals both. And so it, it, it's really it's really testing and, and um, uh, allowing the education of the immune system of the individual to allow it to form an immune response without obviously causing disease. And that's a real important part that we're gonna talk about is the safety of the vaccines. But today we can do vaccines in a variety of different ways. Um, and, and a lot of the, the companies, uh, a lot of the uh, government uh, programs that you see developing are looking at a variety of different types of vaccines against COVID because we don't know yet which is gonna be the most effective. Uh, so one thing about a vaccine that we can really understand is that it, it's really a reaction of the body. When we expose the body to a foreign substance, uh, any kind of a foreign substance, we have an immune response against it. And it could be an immune response that's you know, it's something we already have. It's an innate response to it, or it could be what we call acquired, which is we developed antibodies, for example, or even cells that are reactive. And so when we see the, the, the natural pathogen, 
our body's ready for it. And, and antibodies and, and what we call cell mediated immunity is, is important for that. So the ideal vaccine does the, prepares the body uh, for the real thing, the, the infection, mm-hmm. and really has the ability then to fight off the infection at its very earliest stage, hopefully, before it causes a disease. So that's the, the broad strokes goal of any vaccine. So do you think that in the technology now we'll be able to um, compress? I mean, you mentioned the smallpox and the polio mm-hmm. vaccine. Those things took 20, 10, 20 years to develop. So it seems as though if you read the lay press right now that they're compressing and some are even saying they're going to have vaccines going to trials very quickly. Um, what do you see the technology contributing? Yeah, I think one of the things that, that we have an advantage of um, is that we do have all of these different types of uh, uh, individual uh, research groups here at UC Davis as well that are trying uh, in, a, in a very rapid fashion to put a lot of effort into vaccine production. It starts with our immunologist. Uh, our immunologists are looking at how does the body respond to the virus infection to try to get clues as to you know, what's more important? Is it an antibody? Is it a neutralizing antibody? And those studies are done in a variety of ways. Uh, one is in your hospital. I imagine some of your clinicians are, are storing blood samples and, and looking at the patient's immune responses. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what you're doing actually with the, the COVID patients in the hospital? So um, the samples of the COVID patients are uh, in our biobank, but in addition, we're looking at healthcare workers. And so we're looking at the antibody response of healthcare workers um, who had positive tests and then people who were exposed, we're looking at their antibody response. So um, everybody who's in the study gets a um, nasopharyngeal swab that we've seen the pictures of, uh, such a, test and then they also get antibody tests. And so basically they can then time out from the time of the infection and the antibody and what kind of antibodies and how much. That's, I think, a foundation of um, the immune response. Um, Also uh, in the mouse biology core uh, over on the Davis campus, they're working uh, collaboratively with a company called Vendary that's got the Vax patch. Um, And that is actually a unique delivery system, which has these um, special little micro needles uh, and it is a patch kind of like um, I think a patch you would put on maybe for the smoking or or such Mm -hmm. and then that's a delivery mechanism but they're also um, they're a vaccine company uh, with that skill set so it's really great to see our researchers who have expertise um, really working hand in glove with a company who has that expertise. You know, that's one of the things I think that's really um, great about what the NIH is doing with Francis Collins' leadership about working with companies and researchers side by side. So um, I'm excited to see what they have been doing and um, hopefully moving um, of many of these different companies to human trials. You mentioned several different important concepts there. You know, the the delivery mechanism, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, people think of a, just you stick your arm with a needle, but in fact, sometimes we have to deliver vaccines in different forms. And that patch vaccine is a very interesting and novel form to, to do that with. You know, one of the, the things we have to take into account is 
where do the viruses uh, enter the body? Uh, and so sometimes it's important to be ready, or the body to be ready at the site of entry. So for example, in respiratory diseases, the actually the site of entry of the virus may be through the nose and the mouth. And so antibodies that are locally produced there, uh, they're called IgA antibodies, but if they, if a vaccine could elicit those, it could block it at the very earliest stage. So vaccine manufacturers, when they think about, uh, you know, what's important in the patients, uh, which is very important to understand how do patients react? Where does the virus enter into the body? You're trying to replicate that when you do a platform for a virus uh, infection. The other thing that you mentioned is the foundation uh, knowledge of, of how the virus is, is infecting the, the, the actual patient. Uh, that's really important to know because you want to match that up with what are the tools that we have available to test vaccines. So, you know, vaccines are typically tested in a variety of ways, um, but one of the things we do need is to test them in animals for safety purposes. Right now, we have about three different animal species that are readily available. Mice make up the majority, as you mentioned, our mouse biology program, which is is one of our real strengths here at UC Davis. It's an incredible program. We have the, the genetic uh, contract essentially for NIH here, the mouse knockout contract they call it, which is really to understand the genetic basis of disease. And it really prevents, uh, presents a, a, a real platform for understanding that. So mice, which are about 95% of the laboratory animals used to test the safety of any vaccine, but also uniquely for this virus, uh, ferrets. Um, ferrets turned out to be susceptible uh, in the early studies uh, to flu virus vaccines. They're used to test flu virus vaccines and also monkeys. We have the California National Primate Research Center here. And so that presents us in a real novel position to be able to test the safety of vaccines before we get to people. And, and, and Allison, you might mention, what are the problems we could have in humans if uh, a vaccine is not safe? Yes, I mean, you know, if it's not safe, um, well, of course I'm a neurologist and, you know, there, we worry about side effects um, and we worry about um, people getting sick, but we also worry about them having untoward diseases. And we've seen those before um, in, in a variety of things. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that's come to light is We've, if you rush and you have a vaccine that has side effects, then people might be wary. Um, I, I still remember um, the swine flu vaccine, right? And uh, people got what's called Guillain-Barre, but now, um, now people are still afraid of getting some vaccines because of side effects. And we, so we really have to make sure that we're um, also guiding this so that as we bring a vaccine to market, we don't have a vaccine that has a lot of side effects. Um, uh, you know, Guillain-Barre is treatable, but it, but it, it scared a lot of people um, back in the day when that happened. So, you know, I will say, I think it's important, um, whether we're talking about mice, ferrets, or the primate center, um, that all that research is really very tightly supervised and very tightly approved and is probably some of the most highly regulated research in the country. Um, and all of this kind of work is done at what they call a BSL-3 uh, capability. So it's, it's very 
uh, controlled, the virus is controlled, the animals are controlled, the animals get excellent care, and you're a veterinarian, so you probably can speak much more to animal um, supervision than I could. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's uh, highly regulated for the purpose of the welfare of the animals. And, you know, the, they want to use the least amount of animals as possible, but make sure it's safe uh, in people. And as you mentioned, the, the side effects that could occur, even though they may be low, could be very uh, damaging to uh, any kind of vaccine program. And we really need the, the public to understand and be um, uh, secure that it is a safe vaccine. So when, they, when we think about the vaccine, there's the, all of those safety things is at the top of the list. The other thing is efficacy or how well does it work? You know, is it actually doing what it, it, its job was supposed to be? Uh, there are examples where vaccines um, may actually exacerbate a disease and dengue virus is a good example where antibodies produced against the wrong kind of parts and pieces of the virus may actually cause uh, an exacerbation. So those are all uh, safety studies that extend into actually testing of a vaccine for does it actually work? And in order to do that, you need those uh, animal models to really to, to begin to understand that. So the early vaccines against COVID, uh, and, and as you mentioned, it's, it's been a really rapid um, uh, course. There were companies working on these vaccines because SARS, the first SARS uh, in 2006, uh, they were already testing and had many vaccines uh, underway. And so those same platforms are now being used for this virus, which is SARS-CoV-2, the, the, the COVID-19 uh, agent. So because of those platforms are, we're ready to go, some of the companies had a head start and that's what you've been seeing in the news. And, uh, but different uh, groups, uh, and there are a lot of them. Yes. And you've heard about the warp speed project of the government I did. I has did. selected about 14 different types of platforms. Uh, and they do that because they're wanting to see, does a, a, an RNA type vaccine, so that's the genetic material of the virus, and it's used to understand and, and then inject and, and have the body naturally make the proteins of the virus once the um, genetic material is used. That's a different approach than let's say taking the virus itself and making it inactivated or parts and pieces of the virus. The spike protein is, is an obvious target. That's the outer coat of the virus. And we already know that a lot of antibodies in the patients you mentioned are forming antibodies against that protein. And the reason that's a focus is because that has to attach uh, the virus to the cell. So you if we can block that uh, by antibodies against the spike protein, that's a real key. And so a lot of companies are focused in on that part of the virus. So it's, um, it's really um, science at its very best. And then um, there's also this issue um, that you may know more about, um, the ACE2. Um, and, you know, people are beginning to try to unpack, um, are there different patients who may respond differently to the virus, just like there's different people who are responding, I mean, to the vaccine, just like there's different people who respond to the virus. So, you know, there's this whole concern about people who are asymptomatic shedders or have mild symptoms and people that get more severe symptoms mm -hmm. and trying to parse out why that is. And then the question will be also maybe about a response to a vaccine. Some people may have 
a robust response and some people may not have a robust response. We run into that with the flu, right? We get a flu vaccine and sometimes people uh, get good coverage from the flu vaccine and sometimes not. It's um, the way they make the vaccine, but in part, it's also the individual patient's response. Yeah, you have two, two components, right? You have the virus, of course, that we yes. can you know, put in, in the body in different forms, but then you have the host, the, the, the person uh, that's being vaccinated. And you're absolutely right, the genetics of the host you know, determine, and all of us uh, can understand that because we all have different susceptibilities to disease and we have different responses uh, to vaccines as well. The other factors could include age. You know, we're very concerned about and I guess I'm particularly concerned. I'm getting into that age group uh, about uh, the no way. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And so you know, we we have um, differences in age. So as we grow older, some of our immune system may not work as well as it did when we were younger. And so when we test vaccines, you have to also think about uh, that the population that are going to be most susceptible. Uh, that then goes back into let's say we do get a successful vaccine we may prioritize in our public health systems who we choose to vaccinate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think, um, I think that's gonna be very interesting because, you know, would we prioritize the older, more at-risk individuals or would we even prioritize um, this idea of the people who are going to live in close quarters? So, you know, there's the meningococcal vaccine that we give college students, for example, because they're in close quarters and they're at most risk of the disease. So I think it's gonna be very interesting to see um, how the epidemiology plays out. Um, all these patients in the nursing homes who have gotten COVID-19. Um, so maybe though we will begin to vaccinate, you know, we vaccinate older individuals in the United States for um, the pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. We give them the flu, we give older individuals the shingles vaccine, um, all those things. And, and maybe that will be the target population. Um, but then there's also the individuals who are gonna be in these close quarters. You know, I still say every day um, that the number one thing you can do um, will be to wash your hands, be six feet apart and wear a mask. And it's probably gonna be that way for a good while until we really know that a vaccine, whenever we get it, may work. Um, so boy, it's gonna be hard to figure out who. And then of course, some vaccines, you need multiple shots, right? I mean, the oral polio vaccine is, I think, three, three That's, yeah. applications. Yeah, and that makes, uh, you know, and that, that makes a lot of sense from the point of view that, you know, the body, when it first sees a, a vaccine, may not have a robust amount of, of, of immune response. And the second time it sees the vaccine, that's why we often give boosters. And in children, of course, that's a that's a, a standardized protocol where they need uh, booster shots. And, and it may be in this kind of a virus, we may need that. It's certainly in animals that is true. The other thing we worry a little bit about based upon our animal studies is that, will the virus change over time? And of course, flu is the classic example for yeah, that. Yeah, we, yeah. we have to make a flu vaccine essentially seasonally against uh, influenza because we know that that virus changes. Now, fortunately, coronaviruses don't change as rapidly, but we know from evidence in chickens, for example, who have a coronavirus, a respiratory coronavirus, 
that different regions of the country have different types of viruses. And so the vaccine has to be developed about that particular strain of virus. So lots of questions, lots of factors, um, a lot of decisions. Uh, and it's not simply a matter of getting it off the shelf. And so that's why we do have to dampen down a little bit of the expectations that we will have an efficacious vaccines uh, quickly. We would hope by the end of the year, we'll start to see some direct trials in humans. Um, and, and Allison, uh, if let's say we did have a vaccine develop and it was safe and, and your uh, faculty and your uh, expert uh, decided we're gonna use it, how would you approach it at the medical school for uh, a vaccine trial, let's say? So I think um, we would um, really decide who was most at risk. Um, so the way clinical trials work is there's what we call enrollment criteria. And so protocols are written, they are approved by the FDA, they're approved by what we call institutional IRB board. They're highly regulated, any trial is highly regulated. Um, and then you, uh, the protocol would decide the number of people who needed to be enrolled um, and what went, how their blood would be measured before and after the vaccine, how you would measure a response to the vaccine. It would be, I mean, we would be um, recruiting individuals, but they have to meet what we call the enrollment criteria. So a certain age, a certain degree of health. And generally most trials start with healthy individuals. They call those uh, phase one trials. They start with healthy individuals. I really want to make sure before I forget that I re-emphasize to all the parents that it is crucial that you get your children their routine vaccinations. Nothing of what we talk about now or in the future should interfere with that. Um, we have learned that across the country, there are parents afraid or not getting the update vaccine for children. And really it would be disastrous if we had a measles outbreak, for example. Um, Stu Cohen gave a wonderful talk this morning on our um, research town hall that we do every week between the UC Davis Sacramento campus and the Davis campus. And he was showing how contagious um, measles is compared to coronavirus. And so even though we think coronavirus is contagious, it's kind of, um, uh, it's got a score of between two and four on the contagious scale that he talks about. And measles, I think was maybe a 10 or something. And so, you know, not getting your measles vaccine and having your MMR up to date for kids and teenagers is, would be a, a public health disaster in this time frame. And, and unfortunately, we've seen that globally with a, yes. a, a disruption of vaccine protocols in children, a resurgence of uh, measles virus and, and other in, uh, infections uh, worldwide. So yes. uh, just to reiterate those comments. Well, a lot of things to think about. Um, uh, and yeah. uh, this is going to be an ongoing subject. We may have to talk about it further in our future podcast. But you know, it's, it's great to be with you uh, today, Allison. And it's always a pleasure talking with you. It's always a pleasure too. So I'm Allison Brashear. I'm the Dean at UC Davis School of Medicine. And you've been listening to Dean's Discuss with uh, Michael Larimore, the Dean of UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Please return to our new episode. And we're going to have a, a, a multi-part discussion on something that's near to dear to both of our uh, hearts, which is our educational programs, how they've been disrupted with the COVID pandemic. How do we get our veterinary and medical students 
back in action, back in their education, uh, in clinics safely and effectively. So we're going to talk a little bit about how the COVID pandemic has affected our educational programs. Yes, and we really welcome all your questions and ideas for the future episodes. You can email us at deansdiscuss at ucdavis.edu. And in the meantime, you can visit ucdavis.edu backslash COVID and then a dash 19 for the latest coronavirus research from UC Davis. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.